All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be at uh, this morning as we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. As you guys make your way that direction, we're going to actually pick up in verse 9. Last week we looked at the first eight verses of this chapter, but as we talked about it, what I shared with you is that Corinth as a city was known for a great amount of comfort and excess. And so that led to this major question in the mind of the Corinthians, and and that was as they looked at the life of the Apostle Paul, why do you do what you do? As as Paul walked away from a life of ease and, and success in the eyes of the world, why would you walk away from that only to be jailed and suffered and have to go through all the things that they just couldn't simply reconcile what they saw in Paul's life and what he was really all about? And so what Paul is going to try to do is he's going to try to help clear up any misunderstandings they might have about what are his motives in this life. As I was studying this week, I came across the story of a young pastor who had just planted a church in a rural setting sort of like this. And they were about uh, three years into his ministry. And as he was praying through what the Lord would have him to share for that particular Sunday, what was heavy on his heart was the vices of the people in the congregation. He he wanted desperately to be able to speak directly to the things that were just stunting their growth as a group of Christians. And so he decided to lay out this uh, message. And, and what he started with on that particular Sunday was four mason jars and then four earthworms. And in the first mason jar, he filled it full of uh, whiskey. And he took the first earthworm and he placed it into the jar of whiskey and he closed the lid on it. And in the second jar, it was full of uh, cigarette smoke and ashes. And he took the second earthworm and he dropped it into the jar of ashes and smoke and he put a lid on it. And the third jar, he filled it full of Hershey's chocolate syrup all the way to the top. And he took the third earthworm and he placed it into it and he put a lid on it. And then the fourth jar, it was full of fresh, beautiful black topsoil. And he filled it full of that uh, topsoil in the jar and he dropped this fourth little kind of scraggly earthworm not as healthy as the others and he he dropped it in there and he put a lid on it and then he proceeded for the next 30 minutes to preach on these same devices or same vices that were crippling his church and man he laid it out there he really went for it and at the end of his message to come to this great conclusion he he went back to the jars and he held up the first jar that was full of whiskey and the earthworm was dead And he grabbed the second jar that was full of smoke and ash and he held it up before the church and that earthworm was dead. And he got to the third jar full of chocolate syrup and he held it up and the worm was dead. And he got to that fourth jar full of beautiful black soil and he he grabbed the little earthworm still wiggling around that was alive and he said, what then can we conclude based upon this demonstration? And a man that was at the back of the church, he'd been at the church since the very beginning, he stood up and he said, what we can conclude is that if you drink and you smoke and you eat chocolate, you will not have worms. I missed the point a bit. And so um, the young pastor realized the valuable lesson that Paul knew as well is that if you're going to drive home a point, you need to not leave it with open-ended questions. For these Corinthians, they had these open-ended big questions about what was Paul's why? Why did he do the things that he did? And so today we're going to look at that as Paul's going to give them the why, in fact, several whys behind why he lived 
the way that he lived. But as he began these first eight verses, what he was trying to get them to hone in on is to look through their spiritual eyes in the fact that these tents that we live in that carry us around in this temporary life, they're just that, they're temporary. These things are not going to last. And those of us, as we get older, we realize daily that these things are wearing out at a rapid pace. And Paul wants to explain that to them, to get them to see that clearly. And so he begins in chapter 5, verse 9, by saying, therefore, and we know anytime we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it therefore? It points us back to the previous section where Paul is describing, explaining to them. In fact, his capstone there, he said, we are confident, yes, well pleased in verse 8, rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That as we exit this body and we go on to the next life, he's got a glorious resurrected body there for us that doesn't have all the shortcomings and the flaws and the faults of this earthly body. And so Paul brings them back to that point, and now he's going to give them clear understanding through these next several verses on why he does what he does. He says here in verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Reason number one for why Paul did what he did was that he wanted to be pleasing to God. It was his desire to actually be pleasing to his heavenly Father. And you ladies that are reading the book by Kay Smith, uh, you've read now, Kay lays it out there, that we are to desire to actually please the true and living God. And, And the question is, do I really ask myself that question very often? Do I really look at the things that I do or don't do in my life and go, does that please the Lord or not? Or is that even a consideration that I might have in my mind? Am I pleasing God in this instance? Because here's the thing, God always looks upon the heart. We are always concerned about what are the results. What? How did things end at the end of this? And yet God doesn't look at the results at all. He knows the results. His concern is always in the heart. The heart is the heart of the matter. What is the heart behind it? And in fact, if you turn with me to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16, in this spot, the nation of Israel deeply desired to have a king. God wanted to be their king. They wanted an earthly king. And so God said, well, if you want a king, I'll let you have one. You pick. And they picked Saul. I mean, he was a good-looking guy. He was tall, dark, and handsome, a head above everybody else. This was the guy. But the problem was Saul didn't have the heart for it. He was still little in his own eyes. He didn't realize who God called him to be. And so as a selfish man, it, it played out exactly like what you might expect. And so God, looking upon the heart of Saul, judged him and Saul wasn't worthy. And so God decided, now I'm going to appoint a king who's after my own heart. And so he sends Samuel the prophet to the house of Jesse. And Jesse rolls his sons out there before Samuel the prophet. And Samuel, he's looking at these seven sons of Jesse. He's like, man, I hit the jackpot. He looks at these sons like, these are some good-looking, strong young Hebrew boys. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, this is what was going on in Samuel's mind. And so it was when they came, he, he looked at Eliab, the oldest, and he says, well, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is the guy. I found him. And yet, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord looks at the out, does not look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, God's concern was on the heart, and He marched His way all the way through these seven sons of Jesse, and finally said, "Is there anybody else? Got any more kids? 
oh, we got the scrawny one out in the field looking after the sheep. And they bring the eighth son, David, before Samuel. And it was there that David was anointed king over all of Israel. But it wasn't just because David was a mighty warrior why God called him to be the king of Israel. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. This is what we read about David. Verse 22 says, And when he had removed him, speaking of Saul as king, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. What the Lord was concerned about was the heart of the man who he had called. And so it was David's desire, even through all his struggles and his sin issues, he wanted to be pleasing to God. And the question that we have to ask is, is then, if, if we're called to please God, why? Why should we be called to please God? Why should it be the desire of my heart to please God? I'm so glad you asked. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Here's the truth about Scripture. Uh, for both believers and non-believers alike, we will all stand before God. For those who do not believe in Jesus as the Christ, uh, they will stand before Him in what is known as the white throne judgment. This is where God will look at them and say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And they'll be cast into the eternal lake of fire. It's an outcome none of us want to see. In fact, God didn't even desire it. He didn't design the lake of fire for mankind. It was set aside for Satan and his minions. So it's a place that we we don't belong, and yet we make a decision to go there. But for the rest of us who believe in Jesus as their Savior, we will also appear before God. And what Paul says here in verse 10 is, we'll appear before Him at the judgment seat. But that word judgment seat is the bema seat. It was a particular spot in this Corinthian culture that they would have gotten because the bema seat was where they would appear after the Isthmian Games. These Isthmian games were like their Olympic games. It was running events and field events. And so they would compete. And then for those who had competed, they would then appear before the governor at the judgment seat or the reward seat to receive the reward for the race that they had ran. So it's in this spot where Paul, as he was describing this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is what he said concerning that day that we will be judged he says in verse uh, 12 excuse me in verse yeah first corinthians 13 verse 12 if anyone builds on this foundation speaking of the foundation of jesus christ with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is if anyone's work will be built on it it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so yet so as through the fire. And so on that day, all the works that we've piled up in this life, everything we've done, it's going to be brought before God, and the things that didn't have a good heart behind them, they're going to be burned up. It's the wood and the hay and the stubble, but the things that are built on Christ, that are of Christ, those things are going to stand. The precious stones, the gold, the silver, those things are going to last throughout eternity. As we appear before Him, uh, we're not going to come with all our devices and all our trappings and all our beauty. 
uh, because, and I'm not trying to paint too graphic of a picture, but for those that competed in the Isthmian Games, it's important to understand uh, they competed naked, like completely in the nude. That's how they ran the races. That's the way they competed. So now imagine this scene. You are appearing before the king, and you have nothing. You have absolutely nothing. And what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, is this. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the way we will appear before the king. Not a bit of the things we like to make ourselves all gussied up with, but we just simply appear before him truly as we are. And so with that in mind, uh, who does not want to please him? <laughs> who wouldn't want to please him uh, being in that spot? Paul continues with this train of thought. He says in verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. And so the second reason to go along with this, that Paul says, I, I am going through these things, is because I have a healthy fear or a terror of the Lord. And depending on where you're at in your relationship with Him, it's either a fear that causes reverence and awe, or man, it's a, I'm scared to death. I don't want to fear before the Lord. Exodus chapter 20. In this spot, God has actually given the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai. He's appeared to Moses and the nation, by the way, in the cloud and in the fire, and he has spoken to the people. They've heard his voice audibly, and here's their response to hearing the voice of God and the thunder and the lightning in verse 19 of Exodus 20. They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will hear you, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. Like, that sounded really scary. Moses you go on up there, you give us everything God has to say, because if we get near the true and living God, we are not right. We are going to die. And the thing is, they were right. They weren't right. If they were to appear before the true and living God, He would have to judge them. They would have been smoked. And so they, they knew this about themselves, and yet what Paul is trying to persuade the Corinthians to do and what Moses was trying to persuade them to do is this, to get into a right relationship with God. That the fear of the Lord can actually be something that brings you closer to Him. See, this is the difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction always draws me closer to God, whereas condemnation always sends me away from God. And so what the Lord wants us to do is be convicted that as we're terrified about what's going on, to actually get in a right relationship, to deal with my issues, so no longer do I have to be in terror to stand before Him. And it's in this spot, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so if I desire to have wisdom and understanding about what's going on in my life, it begins with this healthy respect with this fear of God. He is the God of the universe. And so it begins with this. What Hebrews chapter 12 tells us about God is He is a consuming fire. That sounds really scary. That sounds like if I'm not right, I'm going to get burned up. And for each of us, this is the issue. And for us on our sin issues, we stand before Him. We are going to get burned up. And it makes me so thankful for verses like 1 John chapter 1, verses 
1 and 2, where John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, anybody in here sin? Yeah, you don't have to answer. It's okay. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate, a paraclete, a defense attorney. Jesus Christ the righteous to stand up in front of us to take the flames for us. In fact, he's already taken the flames for us and he's able to say, hang on, Dad. These are mine. I got them covered. He continues in verse 2 and he says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the whole world. The word propitiation means payment that turns away wrath. He is the payment that turns away the holy wrath of God. So now I can stand before him, no longer terrified that he's going to smoke me because I have Jesus Christ the righteous as my defense attorney. And I can exist through eternity with God the Father, through him who gave his life for you, but not just you and I, but for the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He loves the world. He gave his life for the world. Paul continues here in verse 12. And he says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For verse 13, If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. And so these Corinthians, they were swayed. They were tempted by the silver-tongued preachers who showed up at the church in Corinth. They showed up because, man, the Corinthians had money. And they began to lay it on thick. They, they told them, look, if you believe, you can receive today. And as they laid it on thick, now pass the plate. These Corinthians, they bought it because they, they loved a good speaker, an orator. They loved somebody who was good looking, had it all together. They didn't have a face for radio like I do. They, they were good looking like all those TV televangelists. They see there's not an ugly one up there. And they were tempted by that. What Paul says is you have judged the appearance and you've missed the heart behind the message. What Paul could clearly say to them is I've had a heart for you behind this message that I'm bringing to you. And he says to them in verse 13, for if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. As they looked at the Apostle Paul, they said, he is flat out crazy. Paul's a crazy person. I mean, look at what he's going through. What Paul says is, if I'm crazy, then I'm crazy for Jesus. That's how I'm going to go down. And here's the thing. Anytime you really press into him, anytime you really go hard for Jesus, this is exactly what you're going to hear. You're crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you go so hard for Jesus? Have you lost your mind? Our decisions that we make when we go hard for him, what the world is going to look at and see is that it doesn't line up with what we should do. And the reason is because it's not of this world. The world cannot understand why we would make sacrifices and changes, why we would give our life for the gospel. It does not compute. And so the caution that we have to have in our lives is this, that when there are people on fire for Jesus, is not to throw water on them. Because you know the place that throws the most water on especially new, young, on fire believers? is the church. Far too often, the church gets involved and then 
especially you get more mature. I've been there, done that, got that t-shirt. Believers, just you wait. That fire will go out. You'll be just like me in this spot waiting on Jesus. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's come alongside new believers that are on fire. Maybe a little bit of that flame will come over and reignite something. A passion that was lost and it'll be exciting again. And so Paul says, if I'm crazy, because I'm going all in for Jesus, then I'm crazy for him. But the last part of this verse, he, he says here, for if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So there was a camp that said, Paul, you're crazy. And there's another camp that said, Paul, you're far too serious. You're far too straight-laced. You've got too many rules for your life. Why are you so strict? What Paul says is, look, if I'm strict, it's for you. It's not for me. Paul has already told them, look, I'm at liberty to do all things, but not all things are edifying in his first letter to them. Not all things build me up. And so Paul had great liberty, but he lived a life of discipline for people just like these Corinthians. In fact, in the eighth chapter of his first letter to them, this is what he said concerning meat, sacrificed to idols. He said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. He was so concerned about others and how they took whatever he did in his life that he actually laid liberties aside as a concern for other people. He said, I don't want to make any of you stumble. And so Paul was able to be serious when he needed to be. Now as we continue here in verse uh, 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The third reason Paul says why he did what he did was the love of Christ. I want you to understand this. Paul wasn't saying it was his love for Christ. But there's lots of times where we get excited about something and we want to do it because we love Jesus. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing to love Jesus. I want you to love Him. But if what you're doing and all your motivation is because of your love that you have for Christ, at some point in time, you're going to wear out. At some point in time, you are going to burn out. It's not the love we have for Christ that should motivate us. It's the love of Christ. It's the way He actually loves us. That will never burn out. That will never wear down. He will love us all the way through eternity. And if you consider the love that Christ has had for us, think about what He has done to exercise His free will. I want you to understand this picture that Jesus Christ, based upon His own free will, was there together with the Father, and He was there together with the Holy Spirit, and they decided to, to make creation in their own image. And that's, they made this decision to make us in their image. They knew that we would fall. And yet, in that spot, Jesus said, I'll take care of it. He was a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth, willingly giving himself up for us, who he knew would fail ahead of time. And yet he was determined to make a way, to reconcile us by his own blood. This is some kind of love. And when you consider this love, just three things to consider we think about the love of Christ, first of all, important to note that He loved me just the way I am. But He loved me enough not to leave me where I'm at. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. That in your lowest spot, in whatever place you've been, he loved you enough to actually give his life for you in that spot. While he was there on the cross, he so loved us that I would have been one of those spitting on him and, and shouting crucify him in that spot. He said, I love you enough to give my life for you. That's some kind of love. Secondly, he loved me before I ever loved him. The reason I can even love Jesus is because he first loved me is what First John 4.19 says. We can only love because he first loved us. It's the only reason we even have capacity to love. If you want to have a capacity to love people in your life, you have to first accept that Jesus loved you. There's no way you can truly love them without understanding that first. And finally, he loved me more than I could ever imagine. John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says that no greater love is there than this, that one should give his life for his friends. That Jesus loved us so much, he laid his life down. I like you guys a lot. I love you a lot. I don't know that I love you like that. Yet Jesus did. He did when I was in my absolute worst spot. He loved me like that. And so when I consider this, the love of Christ compels me. Why should I not keep going? Why should I not go the next day and the next day and the next day? Who cares about the sufferings and the beatings? He's loved me this much. Verse 18. Oh, excuse me, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now uh, we know him thus no longer. When Paul was Saul of Tarsus, he likely even saw Jesus in the flesh. He for sure saw the church acting in his flesh, and his reaction was to condemn and to convict this thing called the way. He pursued them uh, to the nth degree. He drug people out of their homes and had them murdered. This is how Paul viewed them in his flesh until he arrived in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. And the Lord knocked him plumb off his horse. And after he was knocked off his horse and made his way to Damascus, we looked at this a couple weeks ago as Ananias prayed over him, the scales fell off his eyes, and for the first time, Paul was able to see. He was able to truly see what was taking place because his flesh could only see what the flesh can see, but the Spirit could see all that God was actually up to. So Paul is communicating here that through the spiritual eyes, we now see Jesus as He is. We see both good and bad, what God is up to in people's lives. It's why we're grieved at times when we see people going down a road. We know even though the world says, hey, you're going for a way to go, and they wave the flag of success. If you've ever been there, you know how heartbreaking that is to see someone going that road because it's only going to last so long. There's only so long that this life can actually take you. And so on the same time, when you see that potential begin to happen, that little flicker of light begin to take place when someone begins to pursue Jesus as he is recklessly pursuing them. What, a, what an exciting thing it is to see this through the eyes of the Spirit. So this is what Paul's communicating. And he says this in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But in Christ, we actually have this opportunity to be everything that He ever created us to be. Someday I'm going to be that. 
Someday very soon, I'm going to get to see him as he is, and I'm going to be like him. Created in his image. But as we were originally created in his image because Adam and Eve chose to obey a different master, as a result, the spirit then died in them. And so for each of us, as we're born into this world physically, spiritually, we are DOA, dead on arrival. We're a bunch of flatliners in here spiritually when we're born. Beep! I keep doing that if you guys are asleep. Beep! Okay, you're all awake. Good. We're flatliners. This is how we exist until we are reconciled then through Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 3, as he's communicating to Nicodemus, this is why Jesus says to him, you must be born again. You are spiritually dead, Nicodemus. This is why it's so valuable for us to be born again. And as we're born again, the old life then dies. Sometimes it dies a hard death, but it dies. And the new life then begins to take over. And so for Paul, as he's able to write these words, he's no doubt recollecting his old life as an angry, covetous, murderous man in his previous life. Yet in Christ, that doesn't define him in Colossians chapter 3, I believe he's considering this time period that he was living through when he writes these words to the Colossians about his old self. He says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. <clears throat> now, verse 8, you yourselves are to put to death these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. This is what used to define you. Paul then says in verse 12, Therefore, as an elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also forgive. But above all these things, put on Love, which is the bond of perfection. Paul says this is what it looks like to be a new man. All those old clothes get put off to the side, and it, it doesn't do us any good to go dig the corpse back up and try to put them back on because they don't fit anymore. There's a reason they're uncomfortable. They're not meant for you. We're a new life. And so Paul, as he thinks back to that old man, he can appreciate that that guy is dead. If you've lived any kind of life like that, most of you are pretty holy, so probably not. But there's a few of us. I got to tell you, I could sin with the best of them. I mean, I could sin. I can get it done. If there was somebody who could sin in their old life and make it look pretty, like I didn't really do it, yet inside it was completely corrupt, completely void. Never any satisfaction in that life. So as a result, I can now look back at that old man and talk about him and communicate about him like it's past tense, because it's past tense. That man is dead forever. What Micah chapter 7, verse 19 says, I know you guys love the minor prophets. Micah chapter 7, verse 19 says this, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I mean, imagine this promise of God is to take our sin nature and literally cast those sins, those things that used to define us, that the enemy wants to whisper, that's who you still are. No, no, those are in the depths of the sea. They are gone forever. 
What I love in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 is John gets a view of the throne of God. And you consider your... Uh, you, oh, I lost Revelation. There you go. I went Revel- I'll find it. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, as we consider what the throne of God looks like, John says, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. You ever consider that? Micah 7.19 says, My sins are going to be thrown in the depths of the sea. And for all of eternity around the throne of God, there is the sea, but it's glass on top. You can't get to it. Those sins stay buried, dead and gone, for all of eternity. Even if you wanted to dive down and send the scuba team down, you can't because they're covered with glass. The Lord has put a lid on those things for all of eternity. What a beautiful promise. As he continues, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God We're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. This is the final reason Paul's going to give in chapter 5 why he does what he does. His reason for his why is that he has been called to be an ambassador of Christ. This phrase, ambassador, I looked this up on the Googles, so it's got to be right for sure. Uh, The definition is an accredited diplomat sent by a country to represent them in a foreign country. An ambassador is sent to a, another country to represent their country. Meanwhile, they're in a foreign country, but that's not really where they're a citizen of. This is what God has called us to be. To be in residency here in this place. And yet, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are no longer a citizen of this place. No longer are you a citizen of this earth. There's a reason why it seems like you don't fit in. It's because you all don't fit. You're not a resident of this place. You're living here, but you're a citizen of heaven, seated in Him in heavenly places. And so when things don't sound right or look right, it's, it's because here's what the writer of the Hebrews says. He sums it up better than what I probably would have anyway. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 says this, These, speaking of those who died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But they now desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. God's promise to them who died in faith was there is something so much better planned. And so they went around motoring around, operating like foreigners in a land because they were, they were foreigners. They did not fit. So as an ambassador, I am called now to be Jesus with skin on, to people that I interact with. The only Jesus many of them are going to see is, is in you, 
and in me. And so as we get to go around, we get to intentionally be Jesus to them. And he wants us to be seen. And here's the thing. People also want to be seen. You understand people want to be recognized? I was amazed by this just a couple weeks ago down at the Popcorn Fest. And, and I let my kids go on the carnival rides. Don't judge me. But they were there on the carnival rides, many of which barely hanging on together. And it was a gentleman operating whatever that thing was that was rusted out, uh, duct taped. Uh, I let Madeline get up there. And as, as she made her way off, I looked at that guy and I said, thank you. Really appreciate it. And it was like nobody had talked to him in weeks. His eyes lit up. Because he wanted to be seen as something. He wanted to be recognized as something that is human, not subhuman. And so often we can motor around not even intending to make people feel like that because we're tied up worrying about our own deal. It's not that I didn't mean to not say hi or not have my head up or not look you in the eye. It's because I'm worried about my own situation, which, by the way, Paul's just said is temporary at best. Taking the time to be intentional to make eye contact to the person in the line at Walmart or in the line at the Aldi's or wherever you happen to be where you're able to be Jesus with skin on to them because we are called to be ambassadors of Christ to share this ministry of reconciliation, this ministry that you can be reconciled. You see, people know something's messed up. They know that they are, they are disconnected from God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so we all know something is wrong and mankind is looking for some way to reconnect. The word religion means to relink. We wanted religion because we wanted some way to relink together with God. It's possible through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is trying to share with them. That through us interacting with the people around them, they can hear the story that you are forgiven. Your failures, your flaws, all the things that disconnected you from God, you can now be reconnected with them. And people need to know that. Because there's a chance they've never heard it. Or even more, they forgot. You ever forget? I'm 44. Happens a lot. I forget things, right? And so people forget. So we get this opportunity to remind one another as we encourage one another and to minister to people on the outside. And what you are is a living testimony. You are living proof that God can reconcile people unto himself. When you get the chance to share your testimony about what God's done in your life, you are proof to him that God is real. And if they knew you in the past, you're even more proof. Like, man, that must be God. Because I knew that guy or gal. It could only be God that could do that. So they begin to see Him live in and through you. What, what change can really happen? And it gives hope. Verse 21, as we wrap up this morning. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, became sin on our behalf so that we could be seen as righteous or be in right standing with God. All this is made possible through Him suffering. As He was there on the cross, as His body was pierced for our transgressions, and what came out of it was blood and water. Those are birthing fluids. Birthing fluids came out so that we could be born again. 
He became sin for us. I got to tell you, every time I read that, and I've read it a few times, I don't get it. I don't get why he would do that. Because I know me. I know me better than any of you guys know me. And you know you. The fact that he would become the literal embodiment of sin. To be, even for a split second, disconnected from the Father. The Father couldn't even look upon him to be sent for us so that I could be in a right relationship with him. It's mind-boggling. And I get to trade in to him my failure, my flaws, my imperfections, all the things that I have jacked up in this life. And his promise is to give me a robe of righteousness. It's mesmerizing. It's the love of Christ that compels us. Lastly, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, as we consider the love of Christ that he has for us, it's important to note how he looks upon us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Think about that. Of all the things Jesus could have chosen, of all the things that the Father put under his feet, of all the things that he could have had, what he actually chose was you and me. He chose us as his inheritance. He chose us. And now, as a result, has called us to be his representatives to share this ministry of reconciliation with the world at large. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for this amazing chapter where Paul gets to share his heart with the church in Corinth where he tries so much to just share with them what is his why. Lord, as you minister to us and Holy Spirit, as you come down and you minister to us individually, help us to be able to ask that question. What is my why? Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I not do the things I don't do? Lord, help us to be able to see it clearly through your eyes. And if it's not for one of these reasons, Lord, would you move on our hearts so that we can be moved in a direction so that the love of Christ could actually compel us. Thank you so much for your love that is communicated through your word that is living and breathing. We, we needed this word today, Lord. Thank you for meeting us right here where we're at. In Jesus' name.